As we read and study the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel writer, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here on this earth, uh, he was on a time schedule. Everything that the Lord did, he did at a certain time. That's why we find several expressions concerning the Lord where it said his time had not yet come. Like John chapter 2, verse 4, we find in the marriage of Cana where the Lord said unto his mother Mary, he says, for mine hour has not yet come. We find in John 8 and 20, the same expression, for his hour had not yet come. John 7, 6 and 7 and 8, we find where it says that his time had not yet come. So sometimes it says his time had not yet come. Sometimes it says that his hour had not come. They mean the same thing. He was on a timetable from the time he came into this world until the time that he was crucified and then spent 40 days on this earth and then ascended into heaven and went back, of course, to glory to be with the Father. As you read the Gospel of John and read each chapter, this become, becomes pretty apparent. There were numerous times that the Jewish people tried to take the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. They conspired to capture him, take him as a prisoner, and to kill him. And eventually they did take him, as we read in the Garden of Gethsemane, only because it was now the time for Christ to go forward and to lay down his life. The Lord Jesus Christ, during his three and a half year ministry, spent a lot of time with his disciples. He taught his disciples on a daily basis. But we come to the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of the Gospel of John, and we find the final message that Christ gave to his disciples before going to Calvary. Now, he will interact with them. He will teach them many things concerning the kingdom of God in that 40-day period of time between his resurrection and his ascension. But prior to his crucifixion, this is his farewell message to his disciples. Now, we start off in John 14, 1. The Lord tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. That means let them not be disturbed. Let not your hearts be disturbed. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many mansions. Not so, I'd have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll return and receive you unto myself. And that's a wonderful way to start a farewell message to me. Uh, he was trying to encourage his disciples. He knew there was going to be some rough times in the days ahead. But I want to look at the last thing he says to them. In John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, These words have I spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Those are the last words that Jesus speaks to his disciples before departing from them. He immediately then, in John chapter 17, goes to the Father in prayer. We call this the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it needs to be studied verse by verse very diligently. We find that the Lord is praying to the Father concerning His glory. He's praying to the Father concerning those that the Father has given unto Him. And it's probably is considered, and I would certainly agree, to be the most important prayer that's ever been prayed here upon the face of this earth. Let's just notice the opening verses of this prayer. Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son with the glory I have of thee before the foundation of the world. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, and he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. 
The Lord here says eternal life is a gift. As I was given him power over all flesh. The word power sometimes means strength, sometimes it means authority. As I was given him power over all flesh, not some of it, part of it, but over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's how many people have eternal life. We give an eternal life as many as the Father gave to the Son. And this is life eternal. They might know thee, the only true and living God, and thy Son whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is not knowing about God, it's knowing God. There's a lot of difference between the two, you see. I try to teach you about God, but I can't teach you to know God. Only God can teach you to know Him. The very fact that you're here this morning is a very strong evidence that you know God and you've come here to learn about God. That's like John 6, 45. It's written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. All right, they all should be taught not about God, but of God. Here's a teaching only God can do. Now, I'm trying to teach you about God, but only God can teach you about Him inwardly in your heart, you see. So the Lord instructs His disciples in John 14, 15, and 16. Now, we oftentimes think about the Lord's opening message of His ministry, you might say, in Matthew, uh, you know, uh, chapters uh, chapter, uh, 5, 6, and 7. We find that this is called the Sermon on the Mount. And here the Lord instructed multitudes of his disciples. But in John 14, 15, and 16, we find where the Lord instructed just a remnant of those disciples, that is, the apostles themselves. So he tells them, the last thing he tells them before proceeding on to pray to the Heavenly Father, then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 18. Then in chapter 19, 20, and 21, we find his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. That then completes the Gospel of John. As I said, the Lord was on a timetable from the time He came to this world until the time He left. But in John 16, 33, the Lord said, These words have I spoken to you that you may have peace. There's peace in the words of Jesus. That's why you need to read the Bible. If you don't read the Bible, you're not going to know His words. If you don't know His words, you're not going to have a peace that you can have, you see. It's a peace the Apostle Paul speaks about when he writes to the Philippian church, It passeth all understanding. That peace comes through the words of Christ, which are words of truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So these words have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, in contrast, in the world, you shall have something else. In the world, you shall have tribulation. But then he uses one of his favorite expressions. He says, but be of good cheer, which means to cheer up. But be of good cheer, for I have over come the world. The first time the Lord uses is found in the book of Matthew chapter 9, in the opening verses of chapter 9. We'll find as you read the last verses of chapter 8 that the Lord Jesus Christ had been on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and there he had cast out many devils uh, in, in that part of the country, in, among the Gadareans, and we find that the devils he cast out requested that Jesus might cast him into the swine, which Jesus did. And the swine ran down a steep uh, hill, ran off a cliff, and they all perished. And the people who witnessed this went back into the city. And they told the folks what happened. They all came out and they observed this. And after having observed this, they besought Jesus that he would leave them, leave their coast and go somewhere else. The Lord did that. The Lord will not stay where he's not wanted. And that really concerns me about our nation. It's very clear that there's many in our nation that don't want the Lord. 
They don't want his laws, don't want his commandments, don't want his teachings. The Lord will not stay where he's not wanted. The Lord left. There's no record where he ever went back to that part of the country. That within itself would be a severe judgment. And then history shows that when the Romans came in 70 AD and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, that the first place they went and conquered was where the Gadareans were at. So the Lord gets a ship, comes over to the other side, says he then went into his own city. His own city was not Bethlehem where he was born. It was not Nazareth where he grew up, but it was Capernaum. Jesus spent a lot of time in Capernaum. And that was kind of his home base, you might say. So he went in his own city, and when he did, while there were those on one side of the Sea of Galilee that wanted him to leave and to depart, there were others on the other side of Galilee that were glad to see him and received him. So he's being received. It says, and they brought unto him a man that was sick of the palsy. Now, the they, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke that all cover this account, you find there were four friends of this man that was sick of the palsy. And the palsy was a, a, a slow, gradual paralysis. If you got that, you become paralyzed over a period of time. This man's stage had reached a point where he couldn't walk. He was on a bed. But he had four friends. And those four friends picked him up, bed and all, and brought him to a house where Jesus was at. When he got there, the house was full. That's, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but they didn't turn around and get discouraged and go back. They opened up a tile in the ceiling up there, the type of ceilings they had in that day, different than what we have today. And they led him down through that right in front of where the Lord Jesus Christ was at. The Bible says when he saw their faith, he saw the faith of the four friends, he saw the faith of the man that was on the bed that had the paralysis, that, had, uh, that was lame. And the first thing the Lord says is, be of good cheer, talking to the man. Be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now that ought to make us all feel good to know that God forgives sins. Now prior to this time, Jesus had displayed his power over nature. You go back and read the 8th chapter, you see where he calmed the storm, where his disciples were in, and that, that first storm they encountered when they was in a ship on the Sea of Galilee. You'll find where he'd already uh, cured one man, or healed one man of the palsy. Now here's another man. He had displayed his power in healing diseases and sicknesses, and also the nature of the storm. But what about sin? That's something that hadn't happened up to this point. This is the first time in the ministry of Christ that he spoke to somebody and told them that their sins were forgiven. Now, when he got there, when they let him down, there's no record where the man on the bed or his friends ever said a word. But the Lord knew why they were there. And this also makes me think of how important our actions are that's even more important than words we say. Uh, there are times somebody says, well, I wouldn't go, but I don't know what to say. Just your presence speaks volumes. So our actions speak a lot louder than our words, the old adage is. So there's no record where they ever said a word, but the Lord knew exactly why they were there. And the people in that house could see the outward appearance of this man. They could see he was afflicted. They could see he had the palsy. They could see he couldn't walk. But the Lord saw something they didn't see. The Lord saw his heart. The Lord saw his soul. The Lord knew he had a sin problem. He knew the condition of this man's heart. And I believe this man's heart was a heart of contrition. You know, the Lord, the Bible tells us, the Lord is not of them of a contrite spirit. 
and a broken heart. The word contrite means to be sensible. Now I believe this man was a, a sensible sinner. And so the Lord could see the heart, see the soul, see the condition of this man, where everybody else only could see his outward condition, his, the physical condition of the man. And they could see he couldn't walk. But the Lord said when he saw their faith, he had four friends that had faith. And I believe it was a strong faith. I believe it was an humble faith. I believe it was a, a, a faith, uh, of course, that the Lord will recognize and honor, an honored faith. I also think I see here three things that we're taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that abide now. 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter on charity. And that chapter ends with this statement, now there abide these three things, faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity. Charity is love in action. It's a manifested love. It's a love that's proven by action in addition to words, or even more important than words. And that's why it's more important than faith and hope, because when you leave this world, you'll no longer need faith, you'll no longer leave, need hope. That hope will be realized. You won't need faith in glory. Uh, but love, I believe, will abound in heaven, just like it abounds right here on earth in the hearts of God's people, you see. So these three things abound. I think we see these three things in his four friends. Also, if you go to 1 Thessalonians 1 and 3, the apostle writes to this church and said, Remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. Here's these three things mentioned over here to the church at Thessalonica. Every church ought to be known for these three things. I hope that our church is known for these three things. I hope our church is known for uh, our work of faith and our labor of love and our patience of hope. I believe they came there with faith that Jesus could do something for their friend. The very fact that they got him, I don't know how far they traveled, but they brought him to the place where Jesus was. That's, uh, that's always nice to have friends that bring you toward Christ rather than away from Christ, especially with young folks. You need to choose your friends very wisely. So I think we see a display of their faith, a display of their love for this man, and a display of their hope that they came there with fond expectation, strong expectation that the Lord Jesus Christ would heal their friend. So they let him down, and the Lord sees their faith. And the first thing the Lord says, before he does anything else, he tells that man laying on his bed to be of good cheer. What's this man got to be good cheer about? He's got a you know, sick of the palsy. He's getting worse and worse as time goes on. He's reached a point where he can't stand, can't walk, has to be carried from one place to the other. But you'll notice in some of the examples we hope to give this morning that the Lord, before telling them anything else or do anything else, will tell them, be of good cheer. Cheer up, be of good cheer. But the Lord wasn't through. The Lord says, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now the Bible says those others that were there said within themselves, this man blasphemeth. Because they knew and understood that no person had power on this earth to forgive sins except God only. And if somebody claimed they could forgive sins, they'd be guilty of blasphemy. They said it within themselves. And the Bible says, in Jesus knowing their thoughts. See, they didn't say it out loud, but they might as well have. As far as Jesus is concerned, Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. And what they were thinking was just like what they were saying. So Jesus said, why uh, reason ye these evil things within your hearts? He said, which is easier to do? To say in this man, thy sins be forgiven, or to take up your bed and walk? 
But to show you, verse 9, but to show you that the Son of Man hath power on this earth to forgive sins, he said to the man that was sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thy house. The man immediately obeyed. How could that happen? Because God healed him. He was able to get up. He came, as I like to say, he came there on his bed and left there with his bed on him. And he did what the Lord said. And that proved that the Lord had power on this earth to forgive sins, which let them know that he was God manifest in the flesh. He had not blasphemed. He had the power, yes, to heal sickness. He had the power to steal the storms. But he had power, authority, to forgive sins. Now, we ought to be of good cheer about that ourselves. That man came hoping to be healed of his palsy, but he received a greater healing first. He was healed in two ways. He was healed in spirit, then he was healed in body. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, the apostle says, In whom, talking about Christ, in whom we have redemption, through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Why, do we, why are we able to receive forgiveness of sins? Because we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. The redeeming blood of Christ has saved us from our sins, enabling then God to forgive us for our sins. One of the most important verses about this is found in 1 John 1, 9, when the apostle says that we confess our sins unto him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice there needs to be a confession. If we confess our sins unto him, he, God, is faithful and just. He's two things. He's faithful to do it and he's just to do it. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you thankful for that verse? And listen to what the Lord said in Matthew 6 when he's teaching his disciples what we call the model prayer. This is a prayer Jesus didn't pray, but he told his disciples to pray. He said, when you pray, you pray in this manner. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's part of our prayer. That's part of the structure of this prayer is to pray for forgiveness of sins on the basis of how you forgive other people. That ought to kind of make us think twice, shouldn't it? Or three times or four. I'm asking the Lord to forgive me just exactly like I ask, uh, just exactly like I forgive other people who've asked for, for my forgiveness. So if you don't have a forgiving heart, don't expect God to forgive you. If you've got a forgiving heart and you forgive others, then the Lord said, I'll forgive you in like manner. And that's not the only time the Lord phrases things quite that way. You go to Matthew chapter 18 and check that out. So I'm thankful that we have forgiveness of sins, and that's something to be of good cheer about, isn't it? That's something to be of good cheer about. When you go to the Lord and you confess your sins, the Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive you for those sins. Uh, and I think that's probably something we need to do on a daily basis, wouldn't you? Um, I mean, does a day go by that you don't think the next day you don't have something to confess to the Lord? It may not be something you need to confess to somebody else, but I think a confession to the Lord on a daily basis will uh, uh, help purify the soul. Now, we come over a little further in this chapter, beginning about verse 20, and you're going to find a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find where she thought within herself, if I could just... If I could just be where he's at and touch the hem of his garment, I'd be healed and I'd be cleansed. That's how much faith that she had. So she comes to the Lord and she touches the hem of his garment. 
And we find where the Lord indeed healed her of her issue of blood. And here's what he said to her. He said, be of good comfort, daughter, be of good comfort. And notice the man was sick of the palsy. The Lord addressed him as son. He addressed this woman as daughter. Daughter says, uh, be of good cheer. Says, for thy faith hath made thee hold. Now, she had this issue of blood for 12 years. We find she had spent all she had on the physician's land. They had not been able to help her. She was no better off then than she was. In fact, she's probably worse off because she now she had less means to continue to live. But the Lord blessed her and the Lord healed her. And he used the word comfort. He does that a couple of times. The word comfort comes from the same Greek word the word cheer comes from. They're used interchangeably. He says, be of good comfort. Same thing saying, be of good cheer. Thy faith hath made thee whole. He honored her faith on this uh, occasion right here, in this situation, you see. And it was something that she ought to be of good cheer about. Uh, I think we could understand that, couldn't we? Uh, put yourself in her shoes. She's had this disease for 12 years. She's spent all she's had. She has nothing left. One of the physicians of the land, natural physicians, they haven't helped her, haven't been able to help her. So she goes to the physician of all physicians. She goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. She had heard about him, the Bible says. She had heard about him. And she went to where he was at. And there was a great multitude of people. When you read all, uh, all three accounts, and she worked her way through the great multitude of people to where she got to where Jesus was, and she touched his garment, just like she said. And the Lord knew she did. The Lord knew all about this woman. So the Lord asked a question. He says, who hath touched me? The disciples are puzzled by this question. How would they know who had touched him? There were many there on that occasion. No doubt many had touched him. How would they know? But the Lord asked this question for the benefit of the woman. He wanted her to confess that she had been healed. And the Bible says when she saw that she could not be hid, she then spoke and told him all the truth. That had been an interesting testimony, I'm sure. I'd love to have heard that testimony, wouldn't you? Uh, she told him all the truth. She told him about her condition, how long she'd had the condition, everything she'd tried to do, something about her condition, and it hadn't been made any, any the better whatsoever until she came to him. When she came to him, she was healed of her issue of blood, and now she had peace. She went away in peace. She come with no peace. She left with great peace. The Lord said, be of good comfort. Same thing he said, be of good cheer. In the 14th chapter of Matthew, we read of where the Lord constrained his disciples to get into a ship and go to the other side. And the Lord then went up to a mountain apart to pray. A great storm came up during this period of time. This is not the first storm the disciples had been in, but it's different than the second storm. And we should learn from every storm of life. We should learn from every experience of life. We should learn from every trial and every tribulation we have to go through. We should learn from it and make us stronger for the next trial that comes our way. That first storm should have taught them some things that would have given them some encouragement and strength how to handle storm number two. And so in storm number two, we find when the Lord has constrained them, that word constrained means to compel, has compelled them to get into a ship and go to the other side. So they get in the ship, get on the Sea of Galilee, and they're in the will of God. See, Job's friends charged him consistently and constantly would be out of God's will. That's why he had to suffer all the things he had to suffer. But Job was not out of the will of God. Jonah was out of the will of God when he went down to Joppa and had enough money to get a ticket to get on a ship 
to go to where the ship was going. And to begin with, everything looked pretty good. In fact, Jonah felt so good about it, he just went down to the bottom of the ship and fell asleep. And this great storm comes upon the sea, a storm I'm confident God sent his way. And those that were on that ship woke him up and they called him old sleeper. <laughs> You've heard me say before, we gather labels during our lifetime here on this earth based upon our words and our actions, one thing or another. We've all got a label and you might not want to know what it is, but I guarantee you got one. And so they called him old sleeper. Jonah was out of the will of God and faced a terrific storm that eventually landed him outside the ship in the ocean down to the bottom where God prepared a great fish that swallowed him and he was in the belly of that fish that Jesus said was a whale for three days and three nights. A picture of our Lord Jesus Christ being in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Remember Matthew 12, 40. When the Pharisees come and asking Jesus for a sign, he says, an evil adulterous generation seek after a sign. The only sign I'll give you is a sign of Jonah being in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. And as he was, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jonah was out of the will of God and faced a terrific storm. But these disciples are not out of the will of God. They're in the will of God. And they face a terrific storm. I can assure you that you will face stormy opposition from the world in which you live if you're following Jesus. I can assure you you will face stormy opposition from your human nature and stormy opposition from the devil himself as you try to serve the Lord and walk in the pathway of discipleship. That's not a sign you're out of the will of God. Often it's a sign you're in the will of God. So they're in the will of God. The Lord said, get in the ship, go to the other side. They got in the ship, got it, and started out into the sea, and they're going to the other side, and a great storm comes. And this time, Jesus is not with them. It's the first distinct difference I want to make here. He was with them in the first ship. He's not with them in the second ship. But where is he at? He went up into the mountain alone to pray during the night. Now, the Jews began their day at sunset. They had four watches in the night. That's why you read the book of Genesis chapter 1 in the work of creation where it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And the evening and the morning were the second day because the Jewish people start off with evening and then morning. We start off with morning and then evening. So there's four watches in the night. Their day starts at basically 6 p.m. sunset. So from 6 to 9 is watch 1, 9 to 12 is watch 2, 12 to 3 is watch 3, and 3 to 6 is watch 4. The Bible says Jesus come walking upon the water in the fourth watch of the night, just before sunrise. Now Jesus on that mountain, apart by himself, praying. We're not told the details of his prayer. There are other prayers Jesus prayed, we're told the details, like John chapter 17, but not this one. I'm bound to believe Jesus prayed for his disciples while he's up there. I'm confident Jesus was praying for those disciples he put on that ship, told them to go to the other side, because Jesus knew the storm was coming. He sent them out knowing the storm was coming. And while he knew the storm was coming, he also knew they were under his providential care and blessings. So the Lord comes down off that mountain. The weather is terrible. It's a tremendous storm. If you can uh, visualize the scene, and Jesus comes walking on the water showing that all things, my friends, all things are under his feet. There's nothing, no exception to this. All things are under the feet of Jesus. 
And when Jesus got close to the ship, the disciples could see him, but they were not sure who it was. And they became greatly afraid because they thought they'd seen a spirit. But the Lord spoke, and here's what he said. He's close enough for them to hear him. He said, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. That's the first thing he tells them. Be of good cheer. Cheer up. Yeah, you're in a ship, you're in a storm. The wind is great, the, the, the waves are boisterous. But be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. Now look at the expression, it is I. When Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus, how did he appear to him? He appeared to him as Jesus of Nazareth, didn't he? You know, when he fell down and said, Lord, who art thou? He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He identified him as the power that struck him down. And there was times when Jesus with some of his disciples that he did not identify himself, especially in the beginning. In Luke 24, he's walking the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. The Bible says their eyes were holding. They did not recognize who he was. And then in John chapter 20, you find where Mary Magdalene came to the sepulchre of the Lord Jesus Christ. She found it empty. She wept. She turned around. Jesus was there, but she thought he was the gardener. But in this occasion here, the Lord used an expression. He didn't say it is Jesus. That had been true. It is Christ. That had been true. It is your Lord. That had been true. He said, it is I. Who is I? I think this I is the most important I in the Bible. <laughs> you see, some people have the eye disease, which is not good. As you know, the Pharisee and the publican went up to the temple to pray. And that Pharisee said, Lord, he says, I thank you I'm not like other men like this man. He says, I fast twice in a week. He says, I pay my tithes. I'm not an adulterous man, etc., etc. The word I keeps coming up and up and up again. He's talking about himself. He's got that old eye disease. A lot of people are afflicted with it. But the Lord Jesus Christ said, it is I, that meant something. They knew his voice. They'd heard his voice many times. They'd seen his acts many times. They'd seen his power many times. They'd seen him open the eyes of the blind. They'd seen him open the ears of the deaf. They'd seen him raise up the, the dead. They'd seen him cleanse the lepers. They'd seen him indeed uh, give uh, strength and power to the lame. Those who had the palsy, they'd seen all that. So the Lord said, it is I. The one you've seen uh, have power to open the eyes of the blind, that's me. The one you have seen and walked with, been associated with, to see, remember how I opened up the ears of the deaf once again. I even raised the dead. It is I. It is I. We sing that hymn, don't we? Hymn we like to sing pretty often. It is I. The Lord here identifies himself in a very special way, in a very unique way, in a way they understood, a way they recognized. It is I. You ought to know who I am. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me. It is I. Don't be afraid of the storm because I'm walking on the waters. Just like remember it is I. It was I that was with you in storm number one. In storm number one, recorded six chapters earlier in chapter eight, when the Lord's asleep in the bottom of that ship, and the waves are very boisterous, beating into the ship, a tremendous storm. And they awake him and said, Lord, carest not that we perish. Yes, it is I. I'm the same one that you woke up in storm number one. Didn't I take care of that? <laughs> Didn't I take care of that storm? 
Didn't I speak to the storm and say, peace be still? What happened? I said, peace be still. Why? The waves became calm and the wind quit blowing. It's I. I'm the same one. <laughs> Just like our text in Hebrews 13, 8. The Lord Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is I. They could identify with that. They understood who he was. Isn't that a marvelous way they identified himself that way? It is I. And then Peter said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come. And the Lord said to Peter, come. And Peter got out of the ship and began to walk on the water just like his Lord. Then the Bible says he saw the boisterous waves. <laughs> How often we can do the miraculous only to take a look at ourselves, our circumstances in life, and the things of this world here, and all, all of a sudden become a miserable failure. He saw the boisterous waves begin to sink, but then he cried out with that emergency prayer. You ever prayed an emergency prayer? <laughs> you know, we try to pray, as I've told you, you want to pray at least five times a day, three times for breakfast, lunch, and supper, or dinner and supper. And then pray when you get up in the morning, Thanksgiving, pray at night, and Thanksgiving to God for another blessed day. But in between, sometimes come emergency prayers when you don't have time to go into great detail. I'm amazed sometimes I hear people pray. It's like they're instructing the Lord, informing the Lord, educating the Lord a lot of things, you know, just like he doesn't already know it. Peter prays that emergency prayer. Lord, save me. Three words. Got right to the point, didn't he? That tells me the importance of getting to the point. <laughs> when you talk to certain people, I just want to get to the point. You know, they ramble here and they ramble there. And I'm, okay, I got all that. Now, what's the point? Well, the Lord didn't have to wonder what Peter's point was. Peter saw himself about ready to drown, about ready to die. He said, Lord, save me. And the Lord took him by the hand and delivered him. And they came into the ship. What's the first thing the Lord told those disciples? Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Be not afraid. It is I. That's the reason for us to be of good cheer, isn't it? Do we not recognize who the I is here? I, I believe I know who the I is here, don't you? I know by personal experience who the I is here, who the I represents. It represents a caring Lord, a compassionate Lord, a powerful God. It, it represents a saving Lord, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. I understand who the I is. I believe in all my heart. And I ought to be thankful for that. And I want you to understand who the I is. Be in good cheer. Be not afraid. It is I. When that first storm ended, you know what those disciples said about Jesus? They said, what manner of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey his voice. What they say at the end of storm number two, they said of a truth, thou art the son of God. Storm number one should have prepared them for storm number two. Storm number one has the Lord in the ship. Storm number two, the Lord's not in the ship. But that doesn't mean the Lord's forgotten them. And while they couldn't see the Lord who was on that mountain apart, on that mountain praying, I can assure you the Lord was seeing them. Be of good cheer. One of the favorite expressions of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the last verses of Mark chapter 10, there's two blind men, and Mark focuses just on one of them. His name is Bartimaeus. Jesus and the disciples were walking that day and coming pretty close to Jericho. 
And by and Bartimaeus heard about the Lord coming by. And the Lord, and Bartimaeus cried out. He said, O thou son of David, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. The disciples, upon hearing blind Bartimaeus make this statement, wanted him to be quiet. You know, uh, they, I guess they thought he was going to disturb the situation. They're going to disturb the Lord. But I'm telling you, a cry for one of God's people has never disturbed him. And the Lord told his disciples, after the Bible says the Lord stood still, that's, that's a very significant statement. The Lord stood still. The Lord did something people have a hard time doing today, and that's standing still. It's hard to stand still in this present day in which we live. And there's something always happening, always going on, isn't it? But Jesus, who was the busiest man that ever walked the shores of time, who never let a moment pass, a minute pass, a second pass, that was in vain, he stood still. He stood still for this blind beggar. They were there, him and the other man, blind beggars, and Jesus stood still for the blind beggar. And then he told the disciples to go and tell him to come, and they came to blind Bartimaeus. Here's what they said to him. They said, be of good cheer, for he calleth for thee. And the Bible says that blind Bartimaeus got up it says, he laid aside his garment and he came to Jesus. What, uh, what I see in that is this. Anything that would hinder you in your service to the Lord, anything that would hinder you in following the Lord, anything that would hinder you in your fellowship with the Lord, you need to lay it aside. Lay aside your pride. That'll hinder you big time with the Lord. Lay aside your self-sufficiency. Lay aside your self-importance. Lay aside things that may be good within themselves, but they're slowing you down. And blind Bartimaeus was in a hurry. He didn't want anything to slow him down. He wanted to get to the Lord. See, the Lord is different than earthly kings. You remember over there in the book of Esther? I think about the third chapter of Esther when the plan has been exposed and Mordecai understands the plan where old wicked Haman has devised a plan where all the Jews are going to be slain. And he gets word to Esther and he tells Esther, she needs to go and petition the king about this matter. But Esther tells him, she says, if you approach the king and he's not called for you, then it could cost you your life. Now eventually we know that she went to the king and he held out the golden scepter. I'm glad I don't have to think that way about the Lord, aren't you? I'm glad I know the Lord tells me. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, to come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I don't have to be afraid of coming to the Lord. I can do what Paul says in Hebrews 4, 16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The Lord's arms are wide open, says, come unto me, come unto me. Who, all ye that are labor and heavy laden, that doesn't describe everybody, but it describes you. you got a Savior whose arms are, at, are stretched out saying, Come to me. Come to me, all ye that labor to heavy laden. And I'll give you something. I'll give you rest. He didn't say I'd give you life, but I'll give you rest. There's a lot of difference between the two. If you're laboring heavy laden, you've already got life, but now you need rest to go with that. Come unto me, all ye that labor to heavy laden. I'll give you rest and learn of me. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you shall find rest unto your soul. When Nehemiah was so troubled about the report of what had happened down in Jerusalem, and the Babylonians went down there and they broke down the walls, they burned the gates, and his people were taken in captivity. When he heard that report, 
It troubled Nehemiah to where he poured out his heart in prayer to God. Go read Nehemiah chapter 1. And you read the prayer of a man whose heart is broken, the heart of a man that loved his people, and he takes his case to God. In chapter 2, see, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. And you didn't come before the king with a sad countenance. No, no. The king wanted people with a, with a smile on the face all around him. He didn't like anybody to come around him and uh, didn't act like they were happy to be there. If you've ever been to Disneyland, you'll never see a sad employee. <laughs> they may be sad, but they don't show it. They show that they will be working there long. They're always upbeat and joyful in one thing and another. Like they just can't wait to help you one thing and another like that. It may not be sincere, but if they want to keep a job, that's the way they better behave. And if you was around the king in that day, you better not come around the king moping and, and all dejected and down and out one thing or another. You wouldn't be there long. Nehemiah comes before the king with a sad countenance, but the king recognized it, and Nehemiah was such a faithful employee of him, that being that cupbearer, the king had a sympathetic heart to him. But Nehemiah knew that he needed the power of God to be able to do what he wanted to do. I'm trying to draw you a contrast between earthly authorities and earthly kings and Lord of Lord and King of Kings and the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Be of good cheer, for he calleth for thee. Blind Bartimaeus got up in a hurry. And he laid aside his garment. He didn't want anything to slow him down, anything to hinder him. That's why we read in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where it says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in thee sin that doth so easily beset us, and run this race with patience, looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our, of our faith. Let's lay aside every weight. Whatever is weighting you down, whatever is slowing you down, whatever is hindering you in your walk with the Lord, you need to lay it aside. It may be something good within itself, but it's just occupying more of your time than it ought to occupy. It's keeping you from reading as much as you need to read of the Word of God, praying like you need to pray, being faithful in the house of God. Anything that would hinder you and slow you down, lay it aside. That's what he did. That's not just written there for nothing. It's written there for our meditation, our observation, and our consideration. Be of good comfort. Same thing as be of good cheer. In the book of Acts, chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord comes to the apostle Paul. Paul is facing great opposition in his service to the Lord. And he tells Paul, he says, be of good cheer, Paul. He says, thou hast uh, testified of me in Jerusalem, thou shalt also be a witness of me in Rome. And I think that'll come to uh, be a very important thing the Lord told Paul as we move over just a minute to, to Acts chapter 27. But notice what he says to Paul. He says, be of good cheer, Paul. He says, you've testified to me right here in Jerusalem, but you're going to be my witness in a place called Rome. How in the world is Paul going to get to Rome? Keep reading Acts and you'll find out. Paul is a prisoner once again. He's being charged unjustly with false witnesses, false information. He finally makes an appeal to Caesar. He comes before King Agrippa, and King Agrippa, after examining him, makes this statement. He says, if he'd not appealed to Caesar, he would be let free. He'd be let go. He'd be free to go. 
but he made an appeal to Caesar. So Caesar, he must go. What did the Lord say to Paul? Be of good cheer. If you testify to me in Jerusalem, you shall be my witness in Rome. Paul makes that appeal to Caesar. To Caesar must he go. So we come to Acts chapter 27. In Acts chapter 27, Paul is put on a ship that's filled with prisoners. You got the master of the ship. You got Luke, their companion with him. You got uh, the centurion. You got them on the ship. And the remaining people on that ship are all prisoners, all wicked and evil men, except Paul and, and Luke. And they set sail after Paul had warned them not to. Won't go into details about all that. He warns them not to set sail, but they set sail contrary to his counsel and his advice. And then one of the greatest storms you want to read of in the Bible come up. We've already mentioned two storms. Here's another storm called Eurachalon. A tremendous tempest, tremendous storm comes upon that sea. And the Bible tells us that after many days when there was no uh, light of the moon or the stars, all hope that we should be saved was taken away. That's the condition they're now in. There's not a person on that ship that thinks they're going to be saved except for maybe one. And the one I'm talking about is Paul. Why should he think he's going to be saved? Because the Lord said, you're going to give witness to me in Rome. For him to be able to do that, he can't die at sea, right? He cannot die at sea. If the Lord says, you're going to be a witness for me at Rome, he's going to get to Rome one way or the other. But it says, after many days, I don't know how many days it was, but after many days of darkness, there was no light, even the stars didn't shine. All hope of being saved was lost. I don't know as I've ever been there. Don't want to be there. <laughs> to you. I don't want to get to that point in life. That's where they're at. And then Paul got them all together, and here's what he said. He said, I told you <laughs> we shouldn't have set sail. <laughs> I don't blame him for saying that, but I can just see that, can't you? Probably couldn't wait. Didn't I tell you? You know, you don't always have to say that, but you know, you, you kind of want to sometimes when people haven't taken heed to your advice and your counsel and everything happens just like you told them was going to. Don't you just really want to say when you get with them, I told you so. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying. I told you so. He said, let me have good cheer. That expression is used three times in Acts chapter 27. But be of good cheer. Why should we be of good cheer? Because an angel of God appeared to me last night, whose I am and whom I belong. And he says, there shall not be the loss of any man's life on this ship, except the ship itself. But God sent his angel and told me all this. Therefore, be of good cheer, because I believe God. And it should be just exactly as it was said to me. What a statement of faith. God sends the angel. The angel tells Paul, everybody in this ship is going to be delivered. Nobody's going to die. Even though everybody thinks they're going to die, nobody's going to die. The ship itself will be broken to pieces. But they're all going to be safely delivered. That's something to be cheerful about, isn't it? That's something to be cheerful about. I know last year was a hard year. This year isn't much better <laughs> in many ways. But I've tried to find the positive things that happened to me last year. And the positive things that happened to me this year. And there's been a lot of them. I got every reason in the world to be cheerful here this morning. I live in a wicked world, a rough world, a cold world, 
a tough world to live in. But I'm telling you, I want you to be cheerful this morning. You've got every right to be cheerful this morning because the great I am, the great it is I, is still on his throne. And I believe what God has said. I'm like Paul. For I believe God. It should be just like it was told me. And then we have some things that happened uh, uh, shortly after that. And then finally, we find where Paul took up some bread and gave thanks. You're talking about giving thanks in a, in a kind of a tough environment. But he didn't eat until he had given thanks. He hadn't eaten in many days. But he didn't take one bite until he gave thanks. And then it says that they all had cheer. <laughs> they all had cheer. And they all took some meat. He's made believers out of them. I don't know if anybody on that ship knew why they'd been delivered or not, but they were all delivered because of one man on that ship whose name was Paul. Being good cheer. And I've said before, I don't know if they still make it or not. I guess they do. But a lot of people used to use a detergent called cheer, right? Finding washrooms cheer, and I have thought that's about the only cheer some people have in their house. I hope you got more cheer than that. You got every reason in the world to be cheer. The Lord said so. Now let's go back to John 16, 33. When the Lord said, These words I spake unto you, I spoke them unto you that you might have peace in me. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The world in which we live in here. That the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 2, we should not be conformed to. It tells us in James 1.27 that we should not be spotted with. It tells me in 1 John chapter 2, verses 5-7 through 7, that I'm not to love the world. This world that Jesus lived in, that we're told in John 1.10, He was in the world, the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. 1 John 3 and 13, it says, Marvel not, little children, if the world hates you. We, it marvel not the world hates you, for we know we have, uh, we have been delivered from death into life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father stowed upon us. We should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. I'm talking about a world that knew not the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about a world that was in fierce opposition to the Lord every day that he, he lived here upon the face of this earth. I'm talking about a world that knew not God, hated God, had no love for God, yet Jesus Christ said, I've overcome the world. Ephesians 2, 2. Paul said, Wherefore in times past we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. John 12, 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world, now is the prince of this world cast out. This world has a prince, this world has a course. And this world and everything about it is in fierce opposition to God and Christianity and His Son, the Lord and Jesus Christ. But thank God, I tell you this morning, Christ overcame the world. In overcoming the world, He overcame Satan. He overcame the people of this world, the authorities of this world, the powers of this world, the principalities of this world. And because of that, one day you will leave this world and go to a place called heaven and be there with the Lord Jesus Christ. In this world you shall have tribulation. Have you found that to be a true statement or a false statement? Do you think the Lord told the truth? I know he told the truth. Because he's the Lord. My experience tells me he told the truth. In this world you shall have, not might have, could have, might, or maybe have, ye shall have tribulation. But then Paul asked this question in Romans 8.35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
And the first thing on the list is tribulation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, had any of that lately? <laughs> tribulation, distress, trials, nakedness, pearls, the swords, and made all these things we made more than conquerors through him that loved us because he has overcome the world. Therefore, I can be of good cheer. You can be of good cheer today because Christ forgives sins. You can be forgiven, uh, have good cheer today because Christ has displayed power over all types of sicknesses and diseases. You can be of good cheer because he showed the dis- display his power to raise the dead. You can be of good cheer because God holds you in the palm of his hand. And, and there's not enough devils in hell that can ever take you out of the palm of the hand of God. You have eternal security in the hand of Christ. You have what we call eternal preservation of the saints. You got every reason to be of good cheer this morning. Yes, I know the, the outlook is gloomy uh, in lots of different ways out here in the world today, but it's always been that way. Tell me one time when this world was a ray of sunshine. Tell me one time in your life when this world was a ray of sunshine to you. When somebody asks you how the world is treating you, please do not tell them good. I tell them the truth. I said, the world don't treat me worth a flip. Uh, the world is my enemy. I'm in opposition to the world every day that I live. The wind, the world is a, a strong, stormy wind blowing against me every day that I live on this earth. The very idea of telling somebody the world's treating you good. It didn't treat the Lord good. If you follow the Lord and didn't treat the Lord good, how's it going to treat you good? Right? These words have I spake unto you. These are the last words Jesus spake to his disciples. His farewell message, his farewell words before leaving them to go to Calvary. These words have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. A favorite expression of the Savior. But be of good cheer. For I, the it is I, have overcome the world.